Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today for our special program on the industrial-based policy the Pentagon needs uh, and what it will take for the United States to dramatically accelerate weapons production are three men who led the Pentagon's Office of Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy, Dr. Jerry McGinn, the director of the Baroni Center uh, for Government Contracting at George Mason University, uh, Dr. Bill Greenwald of the American Enterprise Institute, and Steve Grunman of the Atlantic Council uh, and the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. He is also uh, a consultant with Grunman Advisory. Gentlemen, uh, welcome to the program, and I'm glad we could all uh, make the magic happen and get you all together uh, at the same time. Thanks, Vago. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Vago. It's great to be with you, Steve and Bill. Absolutely. Uh, And Bill's uh, joining us from the road, so we appreciate that uh, very much. Uh, Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace uh, sponsors uh, our air and naval uh, coverage. Guys, uh, since World War II, the United States really has been the arsenal of democracies. Uh, and it's certainly been the case over the last 22 months uh, of Russia's war on Ukraine, where U.S. weapons have been critical to both defense and uh, offense. Uh, the barrel, however, is draining. And that was even before uh, Israel's war uh, on Hamas uh, began. We're trying to bolster Taiwan's defenses. We're trying to replenish uh, uh, drain stocks uh, at home uh, and abroad. The Pentagon is issuing contracts, which is good, but virtually every weapon uh, needs to be redesigned or, you know, to accommodate new components, or we face a myriad of supply chain uh, bottlenecks and sometimes bureaucratic uh, impediments. I was at the ComDef conference last week and heard, you know, one contractor had to wait four months for a meeting uh, on, on something that needs to be produced, right? I mean, we can argue that's ridiculous. World War II was three years, nine months. Uh, and and we're talking about delivery dates now that are in the 2026 uh, timeframe. Um, let's start first with the Pentagon's uh, industrial strategy. Uh, it's going to be released in about a month. It's the first ever industrial base strategy. Uh, I know that some of you may or may not have been briefed on this, uh, so I want to uh, understand that uh, you guys might not be uh, as as direct. But Jerry, uh, start us off. Um, you know, what does this strategy need to say, and why this is an important document and at an, at an important time? Yeah, thanks, Vago. Yeah, I think um, there has been a lot of activity, a really good activity over the last couple of administrations um, on industrial-based work. And I I think this is the right time to sort of um, catalyze that in this strategy. And so it needs to say a lot of what um, Bill LaPlante and others have been saying that, uh, you know, that, you know, you know the bottom line uh, for industrial bases is is, is production. Um, And we have to... um, we have to get away from this mindset of just-in-time production and efficiency and effectiveness, uh, which we need to have. But you know, we can't just be building. Uh, we have to have the ability to surge and build at more capacity. And that's got many different manifestations. And I think the strategy should outline that about how do you build surge capacity um, through a lot of it can be done through how you procure things and and um, you know where you buy um, where you build second sources and the like. So it's it's got to get into those. It's got to identify some of the you know the um, critical areas, some tiers where there's challenges and where there's a lot of activity going on. 
And then finally, something that really needs to underscore is that, you know, that it, it, this is, um, we are the largest producer in de of defense items by far, but, you know, this is not something we can do in and of ourselves. We work with our partners and allies, and I think we really need to underscore that um, in, in this strategy that, you know, it, it um, you got 1,900 companies producing the Joint Strike Fighter or the F-35, you know, and let's um, kind of embrace that and, um, you know, because we need this global capacity for the challenges facing us today. Bill, your your sense? Yeah, I, and I, I agree with uh, Jerry, but I, I think there's a, uh, a need to focus on the different types of industrial bases. So production, obviously, in production of existing things, we're talking about the traditional uh, defense industrial base. But there's a greater industrial base that we're going to need in the future and emerging tech on the commercial side. We used to call this civil military integration. But right. the reality is we, we have a commercial side of, side of the, uh, the spectrum that needs to be uh, better focused and brought into the overarching uh, industrial base. And then finally, just as Jerry said, this is a global international uh, base. And, and we need to look at uh, the capabilities of our allies, both uh, traditional defense and, and commercial. And I think all of those uh, uh, factors need to be, be put into this particular uh, document. Steve, uh, what, what do you think the document should say, will say, um, must say? Documents like this, I think might take one of two approaches, the, the second of which um, I would strongly favor. The first of which is to be a survey, sort of like the national defense strategy, right? It's not really a strategy in the um, in the sense, let's say, that Richard Rommelt or, uh, uh, or Andy Marshall would recognize where it sets out to identify a hard challenge and figure out what our point of leverage relative to that challenge is and then come up with a, a tight series of actions that are going to exercise that leverage against the challenge. Uh, I, that, excuse me, that's the version of an industrial strategy that I would hope to see. Uh, one that if it wanted to call out, for example, the challenge of, of speed and, and agility, which is certainly different um, than uh, the challenge I think the industry has been asked to take on for most of the previous decade, maybe before the Ukraine war, which I would have thought was about innovation, right? So right. for the, the, the decade before that, I think innovation was the watchword. Now speed is the watchword. Well, that's a different challenge. So how about we come up with a, a strategy that articulates what the government can do to gain leverage over, over that problem? I, that's, sorry, I skipped to the second. That is the kind of a strategy that I, that I hope we read in a month or so. Um, I worry we instead might read the kind of strategy that that uh, the organization, the Pentagon, tends to um, issue, which is more of a survey of everything right. that's out there in the landscape. And um, I suppose where it serves a useful purpose, it gets it, it creates context for conversation and and maybe discussion with uh, both people and and the Congress. Um, that uh, would not, in my view, be as helpful a strategy as one that was more sharply focused on uh, what the Pentagon can do to conquer the particular challenge that, that, that you have teed up, uh, which I do think is, is the sharper uh, challenge facing the defense industrial base right now, how to get, how to get faster and more agile. Um, that, those are my thoughts about it. 
it's it's a it's a multiple challenge, right? I mean, we need to be innovating. We need uh, to be moving faster, writ large in the development of things. But at the end of the day, you also have to make things and make things in vast quantities. Uh, we are uh, literally approaching the bottom of the barrel. Um, we don't have as many AMRAMs uh, left. The AMRAM is not just an air-to-air missile. It's a ground-to-air missile when you put it in the NASAMS launcher and the Ukrainians are shooting a lot. Uh, and now we're thinking about resuscitating Hawks, right? So we have a multiplicity of industrial efforts. We're trying to develop uh, stuff. We're trying to put new put stuff into production. We're trying to mass produce. Uh, and, and then there's a vast industrial structure that's pulling weapons out of stocks and making modifications before sending them over, right? I mean, so there is an enormous amount of activity. The question is how much more we can do in people or unfortunately a limiting factor in this equation uh, as, as, as well. Um, let me, uh, Jerry, uh, go to you. You wrote an interesting piece in The Hill uh, sort of criticizing the Buy American approach. Unfortunately, we've had a renaissance of that over the past uh, couple of administrations. Um, you know, th this one as well, uh, there is logic to, uh, the, you know, as the president argues, Americans' tax dollars are being spent and it should be spent on supporting jobs here in the United States. It's the only trouble is that gets you into a position where you're not innovating, costs go up, and it does become sort of the last refuge of the scoundrel. The Defense Department has made abundantly clear it has a bi-allied approach, and it's going to double down on that approach. Uh, we've heard that from uh, Justin. We've heard that from Dr. Taylor Calais. We've heard that from Bill LaPlante. Uh, and we've heard that from the Defense Secretary uh, himself. And yet members of the President's Party, like Tammy Baldwin and others, you know, want to specify in law uh, what we build here, which is how we end up in a bi-American universe. Just quickly give us your sense on why this is, you know, bi-American is a bad idea uh, again and and what the right approach uh, is. And I'm going to ask you, diff each of you, sort of different adaptations of that question. Go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, no, thanks, Vago. Yeah, this this, uh, this is a hardy perennial. This is not a, a new issue. This <laughs> is um, not a Democratic issue or Republican issue. It's just it it um, it comes up in, in on both parties. And as, as you said, in both the last two administrations, current and the previous. Uh, and, you know, the, the challenge is, is that there is a need for increasing domestic production. I mean, that's been clearly shown with COVID and um, and the, the shortages with Ukraine. Uh, and so it's often a knee-jerk reaction to that is, oh, we build more here. And we need to do that. Um, the the challenge is, is that, you know, that that's not the whole story. Um, we cannot build, we're a global economic system and we can't have an art target uh, kind of economy where we just build it all here. We already have existing kind of relationships and business relationships with partners and allies. Uh, and a lot of these companies that are based in non-based outside of the U.S., I mean, they have hundreds of thousands of jobs here. They have subsidiaries that produce systems, classified systems, unclassified systems, provide services. So it, it's kind of, you know, I think it's the wrong target. And so, um, you know, it's not increased domestic production only or buy America only. It's, it's, it's we need to increase global capacity. And we do that through fostering domestic capacity, but also we friend shore or ally shore where capabilities uh, have competitive advantages. And I think the target for our efforts should be on countering China and getting out of these upside down situations we have in specific areas around rare earth processing and uh, sub tier suppliers, you know, print circuit boards and the like. That's the focus and, and should be the focus, not on, you know, just on shipyards um, only in Wisconsin or, or, or the like, you know, but I understand the motivation behind that, but, you know, it just misses the forest for the trees. 
Um, and, um, you know, the administrators have to be very clear, I, I think, going forward that, you know, that we need to we need to build allied. Um, and, um, you know, th these are not either or situations. Um, and um, let's focus on the real threat that's facing us. Um, uh, Bill, uh, you uh, testified uh, before the China Committee uh, last week, if I uh, recall uh, correctly, on DOD's replicator of uh, effort. Uh, this, uh, you know, and you, and you mentioned it sort of harness a broader American industry in civil military integration, which is what we used to do. Uh, we're seeing glimmers of that in big manufacturers sort of getting back in the defense business like General Motors. Uh, and indeed, a lot of these major manufacturing companies could produce all manner of things and can produce all manner of things, whether they're to American designs or, or foreign designs. Indeed, we're talking to our allies and partners about having a much more modular approach to future uh, weapon uh, production. You know, what's for you the right way for us to execute sort of a global supply, not just a global supply chain, uh, but a global design and manufacturing base that we need to produce some of these weapons that we need, especially to produce them in larger volume than whatever it is that we can accomplish now with the classical or heritage defense industrial base, which we've also heard Dr. Uh, Taylor Calais uh, talk about harnessing, right? That we need to harness industry sort of more broadly than we're doing now. And I guess non-traditional suppliers is the term of art. The, the, the first thing we need to do is to bring together a trusted industrial base. And that industrial base is going to be you know, not just U.S., but uh, uh, allied, but commercial and, 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 uh, and traditional. And the key thing is to, to, to create a, a, a free space where we can uh, have discussions and talk and cooperate and bring our engineers together. And right now we have a system uh, primarily uh, due to uh, U.S. export controls uh, designed to keep, you know, U.S. technology out of the hands of, uh, of uh, problematic nations, but have become a huge barrier to actually just even sitting down and having those type of discussions with the industrial base. So I think the first thing we need is uh, uh, ITAR reform, export control reform. And, and then we need to start uh, uh, putting real budgets behind uh, these, these innovation efforts, these joint innovation efforts. And, uh, and we have to basically not worry too much about having duplicative type of, uh, of ventures. I mean, that's the way we used to do things and the way the venture capital market works. And we want to drive innovation and, and, and have a greater understanding of, of, of what's going on out there. But the first step is really to start getting together, planning, looking at the industrial base, looking at the, the various new commercial technologies, emerging technologies that are out there, and start working on joint programs to, to, together. Steve, what's what's the right way to accomplish uh, this? And how do you think the, the department needs to thread this needle, right? The delta between the president and lawmakers rhetoric and, and what the department is, is doing, right? Because at the end of the day, lawmakers will point to what's coming out of the president's mouth as opposed to what's coming out of Lloyd Austin's mouth. I, I think what the administration is doing on this issue is a form of, shall I call it, strategic amb ambiguity uh, so that it is possible for all of the stakeholders in this question to hear what they may choose to hear. And I don't know that that's the wrong strategy, right? If you're going to have a middle-class uh, foreign defense policy, you're going to you're going to want to be uttering "Buy America." Uh, but if you're also going to have a national security and national defense strategy, 
that puts allies and partners at its center, you're going to want to be talking about integrating the defense industrial uh, bases on which the U.S. can rely. And the Pentagon is saying all of those things. Um, and maybe the aggregate of them becomes what, what uh, I, I would call strategic ambiguity. It's a hard issue, and that might be the right posture to take. Um, the problem with uh, strategic ambiguity is that it, it uh, confuses uh, the, the, the pointy end of the, of the procurement spear down in the program offices, where uh, those formulating acquisition strategies and doing contracting, et cetera, are either confused or choose to hear the one uh, voice, typically the uh, national economic voice over, over the others. I guess the one, uh, assuming they're going to continue strategic ambiguity on this question, uh, it would be helpful if they could create a single handhold. Right. Uh, and I don't think this solves the problem uh, that, that Bill and Jerry have problems that Bill and Jerry are talking about. But if they could just uh, in, uh, enunciate a single handhold, which is we're going to issue contracts from the Department of Defense to U.S. companies. That would actually, I think, uh, thread some thread a needle um, of this ambiguity um, because, as as Bill or, or or Jerry was pointing out, most of the foreign-owned companies that can contribute meaningfully to our defense industrial base have U.S. businesses. Some of them have very substantial U.S. businesses. And the shot in the foot um, uh, that we at least want to avoid is preventing a U.S. company that happens to be owned by an allied, uh, a company uh, headquartered in an allied uh, uh, nation uh, to, to be, be excluded from the industrial resources we can get our hands on. Uh, excellent point, Steve. I, I, will, I will admit that uh, my thoughts here are channeling the outstanding biography of Elon Musk um, that Isaacson has written, Walter Isaacson, it actually be, 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 it recounts in very uh, substantial detail the SpaceX story. And there are so many vignettes from it that are instructive about how to go better, quicker, cheaper, that I, I commend it, uh, even if you just want to isolate those uh, chapters, although the whole of it is interesting, uh, the stuff on the SpaceX story is really instructive to how to how to get a, a complex um, both national security and 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 uh, you know highly engineered uh, safety critical system in, into production uh, better quicker cheaper and at least a couple of the precepts that that I hear in that story. I think are applicable to the more general problem of the Pentagon getting better, quick, quicker, cheaper. One is contract with fixed prices. The instant you put cost accounting into the equation, you've added time and cost. So if you're, you know, if the priority is speed, you're going to want to issue contracts uh, that are fixed and true fixed, not not nominally fixed, but in fact you have to reveal all your costs and your profit are going to be regulated relative to that. True fixed prices. The other is, and, and the SpaceX story is, is replete with this um, uh, point, you know, bring more competitors into the field, even those you're not quite sure have the capability uh, to handle it, because uh, the entrants will both put pressure on the incumbents, but also they will come up with new ideas, new ways of solving uh, the industrial challenges of getting better, quicker, cheaper. And then finally, but more generally, 
you just have to allow uh, contractors to take more risk. There's great vignette in, right. in the story about how Musk, both his company, but also him personally, would question decades old safety or procedural requirements that were imposed on them by the Air Force or NASA. And once faced with the um, absurdity of some of those requirements, NASA and or the Air Force was willing to back them down. And where they weren't willing to back them down, uh, Musk would move off, you know, move in uh, to another facility that didn't require uh, their approvals or, or otherwise. So, you know, if we want to go better, quicker, cheaper, we have to just not just have more money. We have to change the way the industrial resources transact that money. And those are big changes, but they're not impossible uh, but leadership has right. to step in and say, we're selling the stuff on fixed price. We're going to bring more competitors into the field and we're going to be willing to tolerate more risk than our conventional rules and regulations would abide. Um, so to build on that, uh, Jerry uh, and Bill, I'm going to put uh, different versions of that since Steve, Steve jumped the question shark. Uh, but did it uh, very uh, elegantly, right? Let's discuss production and how we speed it. Um, there are a whole multiplicity of factors uh, that are impeding the system, even as Dr. LaPlante and uh, uh, Secretary Austin uh, and Dr. Shu uh, and Dr. Taylor Kelly and everybody else involved in this process is talking about accelerating it. We, we are accelerating it, but many things have to be redesigned. We're finding supply chain uh, problems. We find that the system itself is risk averse, right? Hence why there are you know, people wait four months for a meeting uh, on something that could be done uh, pretty uh, quickly. Again, back to my three years, nine month, um, my nine month uh, reminder of uh, the span of World War II for the uh, United States. Um, and, and some of these delivery targets are in the future, right? We get to 100,000 155 millimeter rounds, which is terrific, but not for a couple of years. And at the end of the day, our Ukrainian allies will have to shoot stuff to defend themselves and to succeed in their offensive, uh, assuming the House has the sense to pass that uh, amount of money uh, under a new, new speaker who opposes Ukraine uh, funding or, or members that oppose Ukraine funding. Um, and Israel needs help and we have to replenish, you know, we have to turn Taiwan into a porcupine and we have to refill uh, depleted allied stocks. Jerry, what is the organizational thing that has to happen? Because we're just not moving fast enough, are we? And and what are the things that have to happen for us to be able to deliver really at scale? I mean, we're, again, we're we're running out of you know stuff to give to the Ukrainians to defend themselves with, and we're looking at resuscitating Hawk missiles, you know, yeah. than any you know that that you and Steve served with for God's sakes uh, early in your careers as junior officers in Europe. Yeah. No. It. Um, yeah. It is. I mean, one one good thing is that, that you can clearly tell the leadership is uh, seized with the problem, um, and they are actively working it. Um, the um, uh, Laplante stood and there's up the joint production acceleration cell. Right, I should have said, so, right? I mean, there are a multiplicity right. of new organizations to handle. Right. That. So, I mean, he stood up the the JPAC joint production acceleration cell led by Aaron Simpson uh, kind of last year, and part of their 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 role is to help catalyze, kind of you know, prioritize, kind of production efforts and, you know, kind of remove barriers across, you know, different soap pipes to help do that. I mean, it, um, um, and I think that's an important thing. I mean, but I, mean, I, I think it's a multifaceted um, kind of problem that need, that needs to be handed uh, on a wide front. One of them is a point that Bill brought up earlier at the beginning of the conversation 
is that you know, we have to do uh, get better at how we integrate commercial tech into defense systems, um, and that you know, uh, and a focus on what's you know essentially commercially available technology and adapting that to military needs in the, in the least disruptive way, so you can quickly get things. Um, um, integrated into operational um, capabilities and deployed at scale. And, and you see that happening. You see that happening, particularly that's what uh, the Replicator Initiative is all about. Um, and um, that's a, a lot of these efforts to quote, unquote, not bring non-traditional capabilities into the department, um, into capabilities. Um, that's that that has been a big, big effort and, and, and is going well. The challenge is scaling that. Um, and the um, and that's where a lot of the sort of internal DOD challenges have to kind of be addressed. And this goes for the non-traditionals, but also, you know, because we need to scale um, with all kinds of companies. Um, and that's the change in mindset. I mean, we've since the since the last supper in the early 90s, we've been focusing on acquiring systems, but only the systems we absolutely need at the lowest possible cost and in, in the most efficient and um, with the greatest oversight possible. And so by doing that, what you do is you just lengthen the process um, and it takes, you know, 15 years to develop a program and get it, you know, before you even think about starting to field it. And we have to change that model um, in developing systems that are less elegant and more kind of replicable, you know, kind of, one I was talking with um, one of the uh, PEOs that focuses on weapons, uh, and they want to build a, a, a missile um, that is kind of much more scalable, quicker, that's good enough for 80%, 90% of the kind of missions. Um, and so it's a respectable missile that you can produce multiple, you can have multiple kind of production. Um, and this is where we need to get into things like second sourcing. You know, if you, if you right. remember, I don't remember, but back in the 70s and 80s, there was a big focus on second sourcing and you had, you know, two or more producers of the Navy missiles, the Air Force missiles that dramatically dropped the cost and, and obviously helped increase. Because you had constant competition, right? It exactly. was leader follower in the production. If you got a better bid in, uh, yeah. Raytheon would beat Hughes and Hughes yep. would be mad about it. Yeah. And it's not leader follower, sort of a specific program that's a little problematic, but the whole idea of having co continuous competition. Uh, and we've got to get back to that. And that's all on kind of how we buy. That's not really because believe me, you know, if you create competition, you'll find your competitors. I mean, Enduro guy has gotten into the solid rocket motor business. I mean, that's right. you know, that's because there's an opportunity set, right? Um, you've got so these kind of, you know, the department can create these demand signals by um and by changing how they buy. Now there, there is some more upfront cost in, in doing this approach. But on the back end, as we talk about, the, the drive down the per unit cost over time, and it has the capacity that you need. So it's just one of the things that we have to change on um, um, and how and how we buy. Interesting uh, point, Bill. Uh, your your take, and then uh, Steve. I, I think what what we we have to deal with is our processes. Our processes are designed for a peacetime, um, linear plodding along type of approach. And uh, there's no sense of urgency yet here on anything, even though we're, we, we should have this sense of urgency. But, you know, decision time just to do thing in, in, in anything in, in, in our system, you know, we, we, we have a requirements process that takes, you know, two to three years to do anything. Most importantly, a resource allocation process that, that just doesn't have the flexibility to execute in year of execution. That takes three years to, to move things along. And then a contracting process that uh, uh, 
is, 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 a, is up to a two-year process. That's just to get to the point where you, you, you start production on something. And frankly, uh, as we know, it takes 18 months to 24 months to move out and, and, and increase production of anything. These are 10-year timescales, and we need to do what we used to do, which is to make decision time, requirements, budget, and contracting in less than six months, and then get, get uh, production going uh, you know, as in, in, in the, the, even a faster time scale, but that's right. so far, we're not seeing any of that. And that's, and that's, I think that's our real problem is that we just haven't had a focus on time and understanding that we need to reform our processes and go around them because the, if we do it the way we're doing it right now, we're not going to get there. Uh, I, I would put, uh, you know, Frank Kendall, uh, and build a plan, a number of other leaders in the urgency, uh, category, but then the question is, right, it's a leadership challenge, whether or not the entire organism feels the urgency, even if people are trying to tell people, hey, let's go. And we used to design complex combat aircraft and and get it into production in timescales now that is just the requirements definition process. Uh, right? There is I mean, no absurdity. No, there is no urgency on the comptroller shop or in the in the defense appropriation subcommittees. And until that happens. We're going right. to be we're, we are not going to be able to meet these challenges because uh, at the end of the day, it's all about uh, money. Uh, and I hope to have a conversation soon with Mike McCord uh, on that. I think Mike uh, does for what it's worth, not the lawyer for Mike. Uh, I think he understands what the threat is. The question is whether or not he has the ability to move the money and the kind of money in the right places in order to be able to do this as quickly as possible. If I, I'm, I'm with you. The appropriators have to send the signal because they are the most powerful people in Washington, even though I know I am talking to uh, former uh, authorizers here, uh, with all due respect. Uh, Steve, uh, bring us over the finish line in terms of sort of the cultural changes uh, required, right? Because at the end of the day, people have the power of no. It is a risk-averse organization. They don't want to be seen as spending too much money. Uh, but at the end of the day, you, you've got to spend it and, and it's not spending, it's investment in the future. And you've got to make that investment, including in the people. Uh, you know, if, if you don't have the people, if you don't have the yard workers, you don't have the depot workers, you don't have the people on the, uh, on the line for the F-35, uh, you're not going to be able to make the magic happen. Anyway, give us, give us your sense uh, as we wrap up the program. Well, let me, let me, let me tie uh, back to reach back to the very first thing I said in response to your question about the uh, forthcoming defense industrial strategy. And that is, you know, to focus attention on the challenge. Um, I wouldn't have thought of this necessarily, but um, uh, picking up from what Jerry and Bill have just said, uh, maybe the real core, the really hard problem, the crux of, of the challenge is in the systems, the processes that, that the Pentagon uh, exercises to buy things. Um, which, which maybe the strategy should declare as broken or, or at least unsuited to our uh, requirements now. I, I do think industry would find that uh, acknowledgement uh, relative to what they're otherwise being beat up about, um, a, a bit of a breath of, of good, of good and, and salutary air is to, to have a defense industrial strategy that says, here's the crux of the problem, is we're, we're slow buyers. Um, and here are the things, you know, here's the leverage we have against that problem, et cetera. So, so I'm, I'm amenable to that. Again, I don't know that that is uh, what's going to be in the strategy, but something like that. Uh, because when you get down and, and talk to people in, in, in industry who do have goodwill uh, more than that to solve this problem, 
uh, a lot of their frustration is over exactly those processes and systems um, which are which do not um, operate on a very effective transmission belt between you know very effective and knowledgeable leaders like Bill Laplante. Um, actually, the whole cadre of acquisition executives right now, I think, is pretty excellent. Uh, but but improving the transmission belt between their designs and what's actually going on in acquisition strategies and contracting uh, is is the crux of the problem, perhaps. Richard uh, Ramelt would be uh, very proud of you, uh, uh, Steve, for uh, invoking the idea of the crux. Uh, right. By the way, uh, that, that, that's another great book. I commend to your to your audience. Right, Ramelt's it, it is the an- crux. Another great book. I would commend both of his books uh, uh, to you, and we we hope to have him on the program actually soon uh, as one of our strategy guests because he is a, a true first order uh, thinker. Any last points before uh, we part, Jerry? Uh, you've got a terrific event coming uh, up uh, that uh, you should let the audience uh, know about, and it will be a great event despite my participation in it. <laughs> yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Vago. Yes, we're. Very excited to have our annual uh, George Mason University uh, Defense Acquisition University Government Contracting Conference on November 9th at our Mason Square campus in Arlington. Uh, and one of our highlights is we're having a panel on the challenges in the defense industrial base with the uh, Vago moderating. We have um, Laura Calais, um deputy, Mike Vaccaro um, on that panel and several members from uh, one of the non-traditionals and well sub-tier suppliers uh, from Enduro and Elwood Group. And then we have uh, keynotes by Alan Estevez, Undersecretary of Commerce in charge of export controls. Um, we have an update from the PPPE Commission, um, the chairman and uh, executive director. And then we have panels on workforce, cybersecurity, and uh, the uh, acquisition executives from across the, the, the Department of Homeland Security, State, and um, uh, DOD. So it's a great lineup. We'd love to see those that want to come. Um, just go to our website at uh, govcon.gmu.edu. And uh, Bill, uh, do you have anything coming up that you want to flag to the audience? Or, or you, Steve, now that you started with the calendar thing real quick, either one of you got anything that folks ought to be paying attention to that you're involved with? But I do think just kind of one last point is that the department has a lot of authorities that it can uh, address to these problems. Other transactions, which uh, Steve uh, mentioned, that's how SpaceX came into being, middle tier acquisition authority, rapid acquisition authority, uh, commercial contracting, all these type of things. And they need to bring all these authorities together to, to meet the needs. And, and, and so I just I just think that there's just just a need, a sense of urgency and using what they've got is, is a really good thing. So, yeah, unfortunately, no events to to uh, to plug. Steve, any events to plug? Sure enough. Um, although it's not on the calendar yet, I uh, am reasonably confident that the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Industrial-Based Policy, the aforementioned Laura Taylor Calais, whose office will be issuing this defense industrial policy in the first week of December, that she will be at the Atlanta Council for a public event, maybe not the official rollout, um, but within a few days after it has been rolled out in the press room at the Pentagon, she will be at the Atlanta Council to talk about it. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. We have to do this a lot more often uh, as I have more questions than we have time. Uh, Really appreciate it. Hope you guys uh, have uh, a terrific day uh, and bon voyage to you, Bill. Thanks again for joining us.